0: Well, we're going to be starting into Jonah, the book of Jonah, if you would like to turn there in your Bible, and we're going to be speaking on the first six verses, or I'm going to be speaking and uh, you interacting with God's spirit, Jonah 1, verses 1 through 6. You know, Jonah is one of the most dazzling stories of outreach in all of Scripture. It includes blatant racism. Reckless stubbornness, sporadic obedience, spectacular miracles, and amazing grace. So 2,000 years, though, after Jonah, another huge opportunity for outreach became available. I don't know if you know, I didn't know this until I found this in an illustration, but in a story. In 1266... Kublai Khan, the famous Chinese ruler of the largest empire in history, wrote these words to Marco Polo, who had visited him. He said, Send me 100 men skilled in your religion, and I shall be baptized, and then all my barons and great men, and then their subjects. And so there will be more Christians here than there are in your parts." Well, the emperor's heart had been touched by the news of Jesus' death for the world since when Marco Polo had visited him earlier, and Khan wanted his whole empire to be evangelized. Well, how did the church respond to this incredible opportunity? After several years, only two missionaries were willing to venture out, and so they and it was a hard journey. Uh, nobody wanted to endure the hardships to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the chinese mongolian empire but even those two missionaries turned back halfway before reaching china left behind was one of the legacies of a the greatest missed evangelistic opportunities in history so god would not allow jonah to miss his opportunity 2,000 years earlier, because God's purposes for our world will be fulfilled whether we participate or not. But we all struggle with the title of today's sermon, Jonah in Us. God will make sure his plan comes to pass. So let's look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. We're going to stop there. My first point that I want you to think about is that the Jonah's person was real. Can we go to the next slide, Eric? You have that? Yeah. Jonah's person was real. Now, why do I start with this after barely starting into the book? It's because skeptics attack the book of Jonah and say, this is not real history. This could not possibly have happened. Do you ever heard that? Yes, we've all heard that, right? And so they say it's not real history. They reject the supernatural elements in the story. And and by the way, when, and not next sermon, we have missionary next week, but after that, then there'll be, when, when we get to the Jonah in the belly of the fish or whale, and I'm going to say this several times, I understand a whale is not a fish. So all of you science buffs, Um, But the scripture, we don't really know what it was. But anyway, I want to share a story, a real life story of another person that shows it is possible uh, that a person could be swallowed by a large fish or a whale and survive. And so they claim though Jonah is either a myth or he is a character in a parable. And this parable is just to teach us to obey God and to follow God. And and today it is the principle that we will, will look at is to reach out to the people around us even when we're not real happy about that. But scripture doesn't look at Jonah that way, does it? Jonah was from a real town. He had a real father. It named his father Amittai. It's going to go on and, and it says uh, in that verse that he was from, from Gath Heifer in, in another uh, part that's in Galilee. So a real place, real father, real person. And the Bible doesn't look at Jonah as a, a parable or an allegory or a myth that's teaching about obeying God. He's a real person in history. Jesus thought that. Let's look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 through 41. Jesus referred to Jonah as a real person in history. Verse 39 of Matthew 12 says, And an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at their preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, does that sound to you like Jesus was seeing it as an allegory or a myth or a a parable? No. This is a real person in a real judgment that will one day come. The men of Nineveh will rise up and speak against the generation that would reject Jesus. And so this doesn't make any sense. In Jesus' words, don't make sense if this isn't a real person. The reliability and the authority of Scripture matter, don't they? It's important that we have... Confidence in our Bible, because if you can't re- trust the Bible to report that this this story isn't real about Jonah, then I ask you, how do you know what to trust in the Bible if Jonah is just a myth or a parable? Because the Bible treats it as history, as an actual. Real event, and if it's not, then the Bible's kind of misleading us. Jesus is is misleading us. How do we know the other things the Bible says aren't true? And pretty soon, you know you're just like, well, here's some big things. You know, there was a group called the Jesus Seminar several decades ago that were going to study the Bible and find out which parts they thought in the Gospels were real about Jesus, which actually did he really say, and what got invented by the church later? And they came up with one saying Jesus made that they thought was authentic. And that's where he said, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, unto God's what is God's, and everything else was made up. I don't know how you call yourself a Jesus seminar, if you decided Jesus basically was running around telling things, or maybe the people later said that's not true. So they gutted the whole Bible. They gutted the whole Bible. Or the guy that said, you know, he handed his pastor his Bible, because he needed to read something, the guy opened it up and there were huge sections missing and he goes, what's wrong? What, why is your Bible so full of pages missing and, and whole sections cut out with scissors? And he goes, well, those are the parts you told me weren't true. So the Bible has to be real or what's the point? What is the point of even reading it if you can't rely on it? So is it just a man-made book or is it God's very word to us? And when we have confidence that what God says is true and we can rely on scripture, then we have to do the even harder work of saying, wow, there's some stuff in there that's really hard to apply to my life. We talked about it some in Sunday school. Loving your enemies, blessing those who persecute you. There's hard stuff. But if it's reliable and we believe it's the word of God and not just a man-made book, then we've got to take it seriously. So verse 2. Jonah chapter 1. God says to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, what is Nineveh? Maybe, you know, Old Testament history is not your thing and you're trying to like Nineveh. I've heard of it because of Jonah, but this is the central capital city of Assyria. Assyria was the first big empire. You're going to hear a lot about Babylon. And Assyria, they're right next to each other, but they're not the same group. The Assyrian empire is going to take away the 10 northern tribes, and Babylon is going to take away the southern tribes about 150 years, well, a little less than that, earlier, later in history. And so they're two different empires. Babylon will conquer Nineveh and Assyria and make their own empire. But the Assyrian empire is kind of around where Mosul, Iraq is, a little more north of where the Babylonian Empire will be one day. And they were the superpower for quite a long time through the the 700s through the 600s BC. They were the dominant power. And as you gathered, they subdued all of the Middle East. Nobody could stop them because they had kind of used iron weapons which were superior to the bronze weapons, and so they conquered. They had great technology. They were not only a huge power, but they also were very cruel. And and Israel had escaped for a little while, the, the, all of Israel and Judah, by paying a tribute to them. But here's what the kind of things that for hundreds of years were the stories were told about Assyria. It was not unusual for them to burn whole cities and kill Every man, woman, and child. There are caves in Israel that have pictures of Assyrian cruelty. Skulls bashed in, victims flayed and impaled, heads piled up to inspire terror, and they would carry entire civilizations or peoples away into captivity, which Babylon also would do because it would then empty the land of the nobles and the leaders and they would send them and scatter them and, and the ten northern tribes, this is going to happen to them. This will happen to them because that's what Hosea and other prophets told them. But so one historian said, you know, these stories that you hear about Assyria would be almost too much to believe if the stories weren't chiseled in stone on obelisks, you know, those things that look like the Washington Monument. They're in stone bragging about their cruelty because it was an intimidation psychological warfare in addition to their high technology and destroying civilizations. So these are not a good people, would you agree? And the final ominous factor is that these prophets that I mentioned, like Hosea, prophesied that that Assyria would would conquer and, and deport and take away the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, who then were scattered. And that did indeed happen 40 years later. So, if you're Jonah, and you hear this, go preach to Nineveh, you know, in 40 days I'm going to destroy it, you might kind of think, like Jonah, why would I want to go to people that horrid, that horrid, that cruel, uh, that dominant, and and all of that. uh, He's got good reason. They're the sworn enemy. He doesn't want to see him saved. He wants to see him destroyed, right? Wouldn't you? So number two on your outline, if you're following in your bulletin, Jonah's mission was uncomfortable. Jonah's mission was uncomfortable. That's actually an artist's imagination rendering of what Nineveh looked like. Kind of looks pretty spectacular, doesn't it? And Babylon's capital, hundreds of years later, uh, in Babylon, the whole empire of Babylon, would be even more grand, the seven wonders of the world. So they had the ability and technology to make beautiful places. So, but let me ask you, as you hear this story. How will you feel about going to a people like that? But ask you maybe, because you aren't going to go to somebody that is so cruel, but maybe you're thinking, you know, is there a people out there that you are thinking that you'd never want to be around? Some people that God says, I want you to go talk to that person who's from this country or from that economic group or, or from that political party even. And you're thinking, I don't want to be around those kind of people. I struggle to be around them. There's an economic group. You know, they make me uncomfortable. Or maybe there's actually just a person, a particular person, and they have done and said things about you or to you, and you just feel like, you know, God, don't make me talk to them. I don't like them. You know, and they have not been nice to me. So I would rather avoid them. And so I'd ask as we launch into Jonah are we really that different from Jonah? So the message is the Jonah in us because I think we all have resistance to fulfilling what God wants us to do in talking to other people, especially if we don't like those people or we're not comfortable with those people. I have a little more to say in in a couple of minutes, but let's go on to verse three. So Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. And he went down to Joppa, which is on the Phoenician coast, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Okay, now imagine Jonah. You could get this message from God, go, is going to be destroyed. I have to kind of use you know, a little sanctified imagination. I think Jonah's heart was like, yes, oh, yes, God, destroy him. Yeah, take him out. This is great. I have just been waiting for something like this. I'm going to love to prophesy to everybody around me in Israel how they're going down. The judge has passed sentence. Israel will be saved and delivered. Because remember, this is the superpower, and they're paying tribute. It's crippling. But then maybe a little nagging doubt kind of comes into Jonah's mind, and he starts thinking, now I'm going to go and I'm going to tell them they're going to be destroyed like that part what if they actually repented? Could that really happen? And that doubt starts like, like, you know, wait a minute. You know, you know God, he, it would be just like God. He keeps being known for being merciful to people who come to him and repent. What if these people repented? You know, it would be just like God to give them mercy. It would be just like God to care for them case you have this image that God was all mean and horrible in the Old Testament and then suddenly got nice in the New Testament or at least Jesus part of God did. That's not true. See, here's God. And Jonah knows God is merciful. And so Jonah, Jonah doesn't want to talk to them and, and and have them repent because that means Israel could perish. So number three on your outline, Jonah's response was to avoid. Okay, so his person is real his mission was uncomfortable and now Jonah's response then is to avoid. He's going to run away. He couldn't take the chance. There's only one solution in Jonah's mind. If the messenger is missing, no message can be delivered, right? So he runs in the opposite direction. So Assyria was, was east a lot and Tarshish, which is modern day Spain, at least that's what they hypothesized, was like a couple thousand miles to the west. So we'll go the opposite way. No messenger, no message, no repentance. And so Jonah is not willing to go. He believed that fulfilling his mission would harm his country. So Jonah, he thinks he's being patriotic, I believe, doing this. And so he's willing to abandon his prophetic office. He's going to quit his job. He's going to flee in the opposite direction and live in exile just 2,000 miles when Europe is not like the Europe of today, obviously. And Jonah's even willing to die to save his country. So he heads to Tarshish, 2,000 or so miles in the opposite direction. So again, what would you do if you were Jonah? What would you do if you were a people, you told to go to a people that you're uncomfortable around? And there are people like that around us, aren't they? Aren't there? People who don't think like us. People who don't share our values. People who have bad habits. We can even say, but they got themselves into these messes. Why do I want to go be around those kind of people? And since we aren't comfortable, it's easier for us to keep our distance, isn't it? And not engage those people. We're going to talk more about that also in a few weeks. I even have a music video I want to show you that's powerful in bringing that message about how does our heart, because we know we're supposed to go out because Jesus told us to go out, and we'll hit that in a minute, but our hearts have to be ready first. And if we're like, I don't like those people, I don't want to be around them, and even if you went and talked to them, maybe you'll taint some of that. Now, I know some of you have been around people that are really different from you. I know Brother Tom has made a whole life of a mission to people that most of us would rather just like, I don't want to get around people with substance abuse and recovery issues. And ironically, next to you are people that worked in a boys' ranch. And was it boys or also girls, but a teen teens in trouble kind of? place that, you know, they don't come and go, oh, thank you for coming. And they were they always nice to you and just couldn't wait for you to come. And, and the little girls would want to sit on your laps or, you know, and, and just have a mommy and a dad. No, they are hard. They're difficult. They don't, they don't act like we do. They don't have our values. So we avoid them. And that's the Jonah in us. God has asked us to live out Jesus love to them to these difficult people that we're not comfortable with and to love and engage them in ministry. And we have enough refugees and people from other countries that are around us that you don't even have to say, I want to go on the mission field. The mission field God has brought to us. Republican Senator Dan Coats, who later became National Security something or other, I can't remember, under the the Trump administration earlier, but Dan Coats is... Senator from Indiana. He's, he writes this I have seen the kind of hope that can sustain a life or transform a nation. But it's not in the ivory towers of academia or in the marble corridors of government. I found it five blocks from my office in a place so distant that it's almost another nation a nation of empty lots, broken glass and violent streets. Now, if you've ever been to parts of Washington, D.C., it is pretty bleak. In this inner city world, a man named John Woods arrived to take over the Gospel Mission, which operates a homeless shelter and a drug treatment program. And the day that John Woods got there, a bonfire was burning behind the building where some men were melting their latest dose of crack cocaine. A week later, shots were fired through John Woods' office window. A gang was trying to scare him away, but John Woods would not leave. In fact, he hung a sign on the front door. It said this, If you haven't got a friend in the world, you can find one here. Come in. The gospel mission offers unconditional love, and the success of that ministry comes down to a basic truth. I love this quote. Anyone could put a new suit on a man, but only the grace of God can put a new man in the suit. Think about that. But we have to get out there with the grace of God, don't we? Well, verse 4 of Jonah 1, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Okay, so you're desperate when why you're taking the voyage is to deliver cargo and you're taking all of your profits and probably also having responsibility and liability to pay back and you're throwing it into the sea. You're desperate. The storm that God sent to Jonah get Jonah's attention was no ordinary storm. God said hurled in one of the versions. Not just sent, but he hurled a violent storm strong enough to break the ship up into pieces. Now, there aren't hurricanes, at least that I know of in the Mediterranean, but you got to think this was hurricane force winds if it's going to break up one of the ships just to give you a reference point. And these seasoned sailors were afraid because they knew they were about to die in this ferocious storm. So what's the sailor's strategy? Notice it? Pray. Yeah, they're going to pray. And hold that, hold that, that contrasting thought because i got something in a minute to say about a different response of Jonah's. But their strategy is to pray. So the Phoenicians believed in many different gods. And so which was common in that day and time was that, you know, there's a bunch of gods out there. You've got to figure out which one you've offended. And so they're going to pray to multiple gods and try to figure out which one needs some appeasing. And they believed that they needed to cry out to these gods. And so notice their spiritual sensitivity. They know something bigger than themselves is at work. You know, so they're on their knees praying. Now, not praying to the right God yet, but they're praying. So verse 5, the last part. But Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. How do you sleep in a hurricane? I mean, the ship's going to be bouncing, right? Iron stomach, I guess. But the captain went to the ship, goes to him and says, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Phoenician, pagan sailors, believe in multiple gods, are praying. The only guy that knows the true God, that there is only one God, and that's the God in heaven, all powerful, who created the universe, created this storm. The only believer... And what's his response? He's asleep. He's indifferent. He does not care about the Ninevites or the Assyrians. He doesn't really even care about these sailors. He probably says, I'm going to go to sleep and then I'll drown. So Jonah makes no effort to even talk to God. He has indifference. But you know what? God's not going to let Jonah off the hook. Because God expects his commands to be obeyed. And this time, unlike what will happen to Kublai Khan, where where God allowed that to happen for his own sovereign purposes. There, by the way, today are millions of Chinese Christians. So it's not like, you know, they didn't have the their religion didn't let them respond. They anyone can respond to the grace of God when He quickens our heart. So God's commands will be obeyed. And so number four on your outline God's response was discipline. So Jonah's real, Jonah's mission's uncomfortable, Jonah's response, avoid, but God's response, discipline. And so, Jesus also gave us a mission to obey after his resurrection, right? In the Great Commission, where he says, Go into all the world and make disciples. And so it isn't like, you know, go overseas and make disciples. That is it is involved, because he would say go to Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, kind of concentric rings in Acts eight. But Jesus says, it really, if he looked at that, the Great Commission, it would literally read, as you are going, make disciples, baptizing and teaching. See, there's only one main command in that great commission it's to make disciples the going part is really like a in your life wherever you go here there overseas as you're going make disciples it's a lifestyle not just for a few missionaries but for all of us to help accomplish that god gives us the holy spirit he's the one who's going to change their hearts he's the one who's going to make them able to respond but you're still supposed to go And you're still supposed to cooperate and be part of that process. It's really not a, if you feel like it, or here's one of my suggestions, but you kind of figure out what you want. It's a command. It's not an option. And God gives you the divine resource of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that. Now, I know there are a few of you that are great at walking up to strangers and to anybody, and you can start a spiritual conversation. I love to talk with Jim and Lou Myers. Because I think Jim has and Lou have that the gift of evangelism, and he tells these he, you know people that you think all well, bikers and all kinds of people they're not going to come to you know he talks to them. Our own Jim, did you know that? Now he's great at that, and and for some reason God doesn't I <clears throat> think hasn't told me to talk to to the hell's angels in my in my life. Now maybe he will, or maybe I missed something, but but. So I think, well, I could never be like Jim. I, I haven't. My pastorates haven't been marked by all this evangelism and these converts from these really rough parts of, of our society. So, you know, what am I supposed to do? But I read several books since I was struggling with that thought. One of them early on called Lifestyle Evangelism. I can't even remember the author. But it talked about... You know, you may not have the gift to walk up to strangers and strike up a conversation. Or, you know, the joke we would say is the guy is on an elevator and reaches for his wallet and a four-law track or a Billy Graham track falls out and the whole elevator prays to receive Christ before they get to their, their floor. I wish that, that was my experience, but God, I thought, has, has given us, as you are going, that, and he talks in Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1 about, you know, I planted and Apollos watered, but God brought the growth. And I like that idea of a seed, you know, because sometimes, you know, some of you, your your job might be to break up the ground. And you're just kind of loving on people and you're doing things for them. And, and you don't get very many spiritual conversations, but they notice something's different about you. You ever notice that? They they notice it, but you're like, God, come on, I want to share the whole gospel, but you don't feel like God has said it's okay yet. So, but you're kind of a break up the ground to get the seed ready to plant. And then some of you have spiritual conversations, even as you break up the ground or you find somebody willing to let you plant a spiritual seed. And then others of you, God brings along to water and you keep pouring it on. And I've said last summer that average of Christians who become, people who become Christians, you know, like like very few come become Christians on the cold calling stranger, but most, 85%, they know somebody. It's relationship. And it's an average of eight Christians that they know in their life who help them make that decision. And it's a process eight of us that per per convert that make a relationship with them so there's a lot of planting and, and and there's a lot of cultivating the soil and planting seeds and watering that goes into that process and so you are just as much involved in evangelism if you are a a break up the ground plant the seed and water the seed with spiritual conversations and encouragement and love and acts of care like we said last summer prayer care share remember pray for seven or five people in your circle of influence and see what God does. So you are just as much a part of outreach. So don't be asleep in the bottom of the ship during the storms that threaten to destroy our society. I mentioned last week, you know, those people are panicking out there over the coronavirus. And I'm not telling you not to take precautions or not wash your hands and just, I mean, but we have to trust God and we can't go hide in our homes And say, I don't want to be out there in the public. It's too risky because God's calling us to go out. And this is actually one of the best times to go out because people are terrified. Did you notice that? And so, you know, in the first couple of centuries, by the way, how did the church grow exponentially? Do you you know that part of it was the the non-Christians noticed how they loved people, how they loved each other, and how they loved non Christians there were plagues like the bubonic plague, which have come in the Middle Ages. There were plagues, and people instead of like being infected, took their loved one who they said they're going to die anyway, and they would go put them out in the road or out away from their home. The Christians would come along and take them in. Some of the Christians died from the plague, doing that, but it sure got the attention of the world, you know that they didn't have. Abortion, or if they, they did it, mostly they just took the child once it was born and just put it out to die. Christians would go and scoop up these unwanted babies, and they would put them in their own homes. And so this got the attention of the world. So we have to go out and engage, even if there's, you know, you think, but there's some risk. But are we here to be safe, or are we here to be God's representatives on earth? Take precautions. Take precautions. Buy food and and hand sanitizer. I'm not saying don't do those things, but I'm saying don't hide. You don't have to shake hands. You can fist bump and elbow bump and greet, wave your hand, but talk to people. They're terrified. Maybe we're terrified. That's kind of why Dan read Habakkuk. Even though all of the produce is gone and we look like we're going to starve, and that was, by the way, about Babylon, the next empire, And they were going to sweep in and starvation and famine were common. I'm still going to trust God, even in the midst of starvation. So can we, can we trust God in this time right now to do what he is calling us to do, to be faithful, to engage our neighbors and give them the hope in a crisis. And even when this is over to give them hope. So don't be a Jonah. Final story. A few decades ago, a church started a ministry called Jesus Action. The church simply posted signs around their neighborhood inviting people to call the Jesus Action phone number if they needed help. So church volunteers would respond to these various requests. They helped with gardening and shopping and babysitting, taking people to the doctor. Or maybe just somebody who's lonely and needs a conversation. It didn't require a whole lot of training to be in Jesus' action. Almost anyone could do it. And these people never force Jesus on the people they serve. But eventually, many of the people ask questions and many come to faith in Christ. So one day, this woman calls up the Jesus' action phone number. She'd just gotten out of the hospital. And so um, she she needed some help. She's a single parent. She needed someone to take her shopping for food and help her wash her clothes. And she didn't really know how to get her sixth grade, or sorry, six-year-old into school. And so she's seen the Jesus Action number, and she calls this number. And the conversation goes something like this. She says, is this Jesus Action on the phone? A volunteer named Mary answers, yes. Well, the woman went on, I want the Action but I don't want the Jesus. I don't want anyone ramming religion down my throat. So Mary assures her that's not going to happen. And Mary goes and helps her with her washing and the shopping. And so the woman invites Mary to have a cup of tea and sit down and talk. So 10 minutes later, the woman blurts out, okay, what's all this about Jesus? (laughs) Mary reminds her, hey, we had an arrangement. Not to shove religion down your throat, but the lady insisted. So Mary shared the gospel and prayed with her. Now outreach opportunities often result in simply caring. It comes from caring for people's needs. Remember prayer, pray for those five people in your circle of influence. Share, which at this point is just share about your life. Share, you know, just naturally, you know. Uh, this this medical thing happened, or, or, or but obviously the coronavirus. And, and here's I'm I'm believing God is going to take care of me. I'm not guaranteed that I won't die, but I'm looking to God, and I have hope. I'm not living in panic. That would be something you could share. It doesn't have to be the four laws or four steps to peace with God. And then sometimes you do have a spiritual conversation and they want to know about Jesus. And then you can tell them, you know, this was God because we can't work our way to God, right? We can't be perfect. It it says at the end of, of Matthew 5 to be perfect as God in heaven is perfect. And since none of us can be perfect, we're never going to get there. We can't be holy and someday I'd like to do an illustration, bring a big thing of water and have one little tiny, you know, quarter teaspoon of, of manure from you know that we put on our lawn and put it in in you know like a two-quart two-liter thing and just mix it up and, and ask for volunteers to come and drink the water. But hey it's only a quarter of a teaspoon. It's just a quite it's it's just a tiny little bit. But it's not pure, is it? So we we have the same reasoning or people in the world have the same don't have the same reasoning because they, they think, well, I'm basically good sure I do a few things wrong here and there and, and such, but it's, you know, it's just a quarter teaspoon, but it's enough to taint the water. So we are not holy. We are not perfect. We can't earn our way to God. And so when we look at this whole idea then of what do I do then, well, God said, well, the solution is I'm going to come down to you. And it isn't going to be about you working your way. It's going to be about you trusting the Jesus. I loved in the evangelistic training the bridge illustration, that God built the bridge to us. We think that we can jump over the Grand Canyon. We can't, even if you're a whole lot better jumper than me, and believe me, I'm not a good jumper. You're still not going to make it across. But God built the bridge, and all you got to do is walk on the bridge. And that's all, you know, you could share with somebody something that simple. Jesus, who's God, came down in the flesh And God solved the problem by becoming one of us to die on our behalf because it took a human to pay the price for humanity. It took God for that application of that sacrifice to be infinite to all sins in all time. It's that simple to share with somebody. And ask them, are you ready to make a trust commitment? Faith isn't just, I believe it's all true but I want to live for myself. It's I am faith and trust are the same word in the Greek. The same Greek word can mean reliable, trustworthy, faith. It's not just an intellectual belief. It does involve that, but it's a commitment. That's why the words like trust in Christ, receive him, ask him to be your Lord and Savior, kind of try to capture more of the commitment of your life, not just, sure, I believe it happened. And that's all you have to do to share with somebody if they ask because a lot of people are terrified. I don't know what to say. That's all you got to say. Do you want to make that commitment today? And by the way, if anybody here does, come up and talk to me afterwards. So don't be asleep in the bottom of the ship. Use the gifts and abilities in your circle of influence, in your neighborhood. You don't have to have a formal program like Jesus Action. God has plans to use you for the rest of your life. Are we going to obey him? Are we going to love the people even if it's uncomfortable? Let's pray. Lord God, help us to take these words seriously. And we admit they're uncomfortable to talk to people that don't think like us and have different values than us who, Lord, have lifestyles even that we find just so tragic and destructive. And what would we have in common? And yet, Lord, you bring us across their path to love them and serve them and help them. So, Lord God, I just pray that you'd open our hearts that we will not be like Jonah and think we're protecting something. So we run the other way so we don't get those kinds of people in our church. Help us, Lord, to have a heart of compassion like you have, Lord. And help us to go out and reach our world and make disciples like Jesus commanded us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.